Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You can find it on page 835 in the Bibles that are provided there in the chairs. This is a very familiar passage to many of us, but one I've been praying this week that the Lord would enliven in our hearts and in our souls. I pray that we would not just dismiss this as being familiar, but that it would speak to us and call us and challenge us and motivate us and lead us forward. You know, for the greater part of the last 15 months, we have slowly made our way through the book of Ephesians so that we might understand better what it means to be united in Christ. It was the main theme that we talked about over and over and over again. How God, having saved us by his grace from sin, from death, from the devil, from our every enemy, and this eternal separation that we have with God, how he has restored us. He has made us alive. He has created us anew. He has united us together. He ha- and he's in the process of changing and transforming and enlivening us so that we might grow and grow and grow together into the image of Christ. That we might display his nature and his character, his purposes and his promises to each other and to the world. You see, Christian salvation is far more than just saying, I believe in Jesus. Christian salvation is far more than God simply forgiving us of our sins. It is a radical transformation. Through our salvation in Christ, we are now united to Christ. And because we are united to Christ, we are now united to each other. We have a union with each other. And Ephesians has taught us much about our relationship, both with God and with each other as the church, and how we are to grow together and build one another up for the purpose of displaying his glory. And we have to recognize, I mean, if we didn't recognize, We just missed something that you cannot separate our relationship with Jesus from our relationship with one another as the church. And Ephesians has challenged us to grow and to foster that union, to live as the church and to help one another to fight against sin and against the devil and to grow together into the likeness of Christ so that together as the church, we might be able to do what only the church can do which is to display the wisdom and the power and the glory and the grace of God, not just to each other, but to the entire cosmos, to the watching world, to unbelievers throughout the globe, to principalities and powers. Only the church can do that. And I hope that our time together in Ephesians, that you have come to a better understanding of what it means to be united in Christ, that you've grown in your understanding of God's design and purposes for the church, and it has created in you a longing to live in and as the church. Because after all, the church was Christ's idea. It is his body. It is his bride. He loves her. He died for her. 
The church is his means of taking the gospel to the lost so that they might be saved, so that they might come into this union with Christ and might grow and be discipled toward maturity in him. And so is there any reason that our early church father, uh, Cyprian, other reason that he would say, there is no salvation outside the church? Or John Calvin would say, Those to whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother. Or Martin Luther adds, therefore he who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ is and where his faith were if we did not know where his believers are? And how would would we know anything of Christ must, we can't trust in ourselves or build bridges to heaven by our own reason. We must go to the church, attend, and ask her. But to this, I would add, as these fathers do in other places, that it is not the responsibility of the lost to find the church, but the church to seek the lost. Our mission as a church is to make disciples of all nations. We spent these last 15 months in Ephesians seeking to understand what it means to be united in Christ so that we might know what we are being saved into. We have spent these last 15 months in Ephesians seeking to understand what it means to be united in Christ because we cannot fulfill our mission to make disciples of all nations without first understanding what it means to be the church. There is no making disciples apart from the church, or at least not faithful, mature, biblical disciples. We had to grasp what it means to be united in Christ first. But now it is time to direct and fuel and channel that union outward for God's intended purposes. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Great Commission Church. We want to hold these two together, the Great Commission and the church. We do not want to let them get ripped apart. They are inseparable. They go together. They belong, right? Without the church, you cannot truly make disciples. And without the Great Commission, you cannot truly be a church that is united in Christ. They go together. We must hold them together, Christ's church and her mission. But you know, even more than that, it's been my prayer for this series that it would awaken us to shake off this temptation towards a false, comfortable, convenient, Christless Christianity and would propel us forward in the power of the Holy Spirit with the gospel to be ambassadors for Christ, to speak of his glory in his authority for the good of his people, for both those who already are and they know that they are his and those who are not yet understanding that they are, for those who are both near to us and those who are still far off. 
I pray that this would drive us with an all-consuming desire as the church to make disciples of our neighbors and our coworkers, of our classmates, of our children, of our friends and family, of those foreigners that we find within our borders. I pray that it would create a sense of urgency within us as we think about their souls and the eternal danger that awaits them apart from Christ. I pray that it gives us a heart as the church for planting and revitalization so that we might see life come to the dead. I pray that the Lord would use it even to raise up some of you sent out and supported by the church to take the gospel to the some four plus billion people that are among the unreached. That is less than 2% evangelical where they are. Four plus billion people. I pray that God would use this series to help us, Redeemer Church, to fulfill our mission to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. And probably what's most important is that I pray that the Lord would help each and every one of you to understand that you have a part to play in this mission. It's what I'm praying for this series. Whether we stay here in Champaign-Urbana or we go across the globe to the most remote parts of the world, we are called to make disciples of all nations. And I want that to happen. And so in this first of five series, in this text, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we want to establish this one fact, this one principle, the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. So please read with me Matthew 28, 18 through 20, page 835. It says, And Jesus came and he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there are three parts to this text, three aspects that we need to look at with regards to the church's mission from this passage. And so first, there's the reason for the church's mission. Second, there's the primary objective in the church's mission. And third, there is the assurance for the church's mission. And so first, the reason for the church's mission. The reason for the church's mission is the glory of Christ. It is the glory of Christ. For 28 chapters, Matthew, this one of the 12 apostles, one of the very first followers of Christ, leader in the early church, he has given his firsthand 
eyewitness account of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He is telling us all that he has seen and all that he has heard. He wrote this historical account so that we might come to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of God's people. He is that one whom prophets had long foretold of who would come, this coming king who would bring with him the very kingdom of heaven. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And for 28 chapters, Matthew has labored to faithfully testify to us of the things that he has seen and the things that he has heard. He is giving his eyewitness account and he bears witness to us that Jesus, for one, has all authority to teach. That he has authority, not like the religious leaders of the day. That when he spoke, there was real power. There was real authority. There was real wisdom and insight, not like anyone else that they'd ever heard. And they were stunned. They were amazed by his teaching. And Jesus would go so far as to even speak over God's law. He would say, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, you have heard it said. And then we talk about one aspect of God's law. But I say to you, And Jesus did this because he saw himself as the source of truth and authority. And he didn't see it wrongly. But not only that, Jesus had authority over sickness and disease and disabilities. Jesus would speak and the lame would walk. The blind would see. The sick and the diseased would be healed. Jesus had authority over evil spirits. When he spoke, demons would flee. Jesus had authority over nature and over death. Jesus calmed storms. Jesus walked on water. Jesus fed multiple thousands with just a few loaves and fishes. Jesus spoke and a fig tree wilted. And the ultimate display of his authority over nature was found in the fact that Jesus spoke and three different people rose from the grave. Jesus had authority to receive worship that belonged to God alone, and he could do that because he is God. And even more than that, Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Remember the story of the paralytic man? His four friends are taking their their friend who's lame, he can't walk, to Jesus, got him on this mat. They can't get in the door, so what do they do? They climb up on the roof, they tear a hole in the roof, and they lower him down to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? So that you know that I have the authority to forgive sin, let me tell you, take up your mat and walk. And the man did. And the whole point of that was not to say, oh, look at that, Jesus healed another man. But that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And he guaranteed it in the fact that he suffered and he died for our rebellion, for our rejection, for our attempts to live our lives without God as if this is my world and I'm God. He hung on the cross and died to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. And he rose from the grave three days later as a guarantee that he is indeed the son of God. Well, let's think about this. Jesus predicted his, de- his sufferings, his death, his burial and resurrection at least three times before it happened. And John told us that he did this so that when it happened, we would know that he's the son of God. Jesus' resurrection from the grave guarantees that God was satisfied with his payment. That the power of sin and its eternal penalty has been overcome. He proved it with his resurrection. It overturned all of that enslaving power of sin and his resurrection guaranteed that all will be raised and that all will stand before him in judgment as king of kings and lord of lords. 
We then know the storyline, right? Jesus ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion is under his feet. He is over every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. God has put all things, all things, you, me, everything under his feet. He rules over them all. There is not one speck There's not one square inch of the universe that God does not rule over. And he's given that authority to his son. There's nothing that he does not rule over. All authority in heaven and on earth. Over nations, over nature, over celestial beings, over celestial bodies, over generals, over germs. He has made all authority in heaven and on earth known to us. That it belongs to him. But what amazes me about Matthew's account of all of this, of Jesus' life, of Jesus' authority, is that Matthew's gospel doesn't even mention Christ's ascension into heaven. He doesn't need to provide us with one more proof that Jesus is who he said he is. You know, you think that, okay, ascension into heaven, that's a good way of proving his authority over all things, right? But he doesn't. Instead, After 28 chapters of just unpacking Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection, he's been building up. He's been culminating. He's been rising up to this crescendo, to this ultimate point. And what does he do? He ends with a claim, a call, and a comfort. He ends with this passage. More significant than the fact that Jesus rose into heaven and giving that account, that he is indeed the king of heaven who has all authority, It ends with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ coming to them and saying to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's all that he needs to do. The resurrected Lord Jesus coming to them and speaking. And he is saying this to us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, do you get the significance of this? Do you get the weight of what he's saying here? The reason why we worship Christ is because he has been given all authority. He has all glory. The reason why we go out and we share the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ with others is because he has all authority. This is why we make disciples of all nations, because he has all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The one who has gained victory over guilt and condemnation, the one who has triumphed over the power of sin and death, the one who has defeated all of our enemies, the one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one who owns us, the one who rules over all of his creation is the one who stands before us saying to each and every one of us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 tells us that because he was obedient to the point of death on the cross, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, 
every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand the significance of this? This means that everyone in this room, every one of the seven billion people that live on this planet, every person who has ever lived and every person who ever will live, every angel and every demon will bow before him. Every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Right? It is not a question. It is not debatable. It is not dependent upon whether or not you admit that or not. It is not up to you as to whether or not Jesus Christ is Lord. He is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's, it's his. It's not subject for discussion. Whether you like it or not, this is the truth. The question, the only question that we have is will you bow and will you confess before it is too late? That's the only question. Will you recognize who he is and what he's done for you? Or will you try to live your life as if you are Lord, as if you are God? One day you will bow. You will confess. There will be no denying it at all. Romans 10 offers us an amazing promise and a heavy challenge. The promise is this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That he will cover every sin, every rebellion, every rejection of him. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between American and Ansari. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches upon all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Guys, we have to stop right here and ask that question. Is that you? Have you called upon the Lord? Is he your Lord? Do you realize his authority? Do you realize his glory? Do you realize what this Lord of the universe who has all authority in heaven and on earth has done for you? Humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could cover your sin, which you could never do. And he offers that to you freely because he doesn't need to gain from you. He is Lord. He is Savior. Will you confess and believe that? that is, this is your time to respond to that. But if you have, the passage continues with this challenge. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they have been sent, sent by 
the church. Friends, if you are here as a follower of Christ, then you have professed a desire and you are called to obey the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That you long to live for him. Not for yourselves, but for him. You have seen his glory. You have tasted of his goodness. You have received his overwhelming love and mercy and grace. And your desire and your call is now to live for him. To not live for myself. And that means that you cannot set any limit upon his lordship. None. His lordship is not limited by geography and where you choose to live. His his lordship is not limited by your job or by your relationships or by your personal preferences or by your comfort levels. It's not limited by that because he's lord over all. The call to discipleship you have to recognize is a costly one. Jesus told us the truth. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, he will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain a whole world to forfeit his soul? What can a man gain in exchange for his soul? Friends, through Christ, we've been given life and breath and everything. We have received salvation. We have received adoption. We have received the promised Holy Spirit that is working in power within us. We have this eternal, unfading, imperishable, undefiled inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us by God. By God. He's doing it. All of that is now ours in Christ. And so now we are to follow him wherever he would have us go. He has all authority in heaven and on earth over my life too. And so whether we are now his ambassadors, we now live for him. We now declare his glory to those who are around us. And whether that be here in Champaign-Urbana or that be to the Tajikant tribes in the sands of the Sahara, he is our Lord. He is our authority. And so in humility and openness, we need to be praying, Lord, where would you have us to go? You are Lord of all. You are Lord over my life. You are Lord over our lives. You are Lord over the 7 billion people that live on this planet. Where would you have us to go and to declare your glory and your fame so that they might be saved? We need to pray that prayer and we need to do it openly. We need to do it honestly. We need to be willing to listen to what he would tell us and not try to answer that question for ourselves and say, oop, never mind. Go where he would have us go because he is our Lord. And he is worthy. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all glory. For some of us, the answer will be to stay. To stay, but to make disciples of all nations. For others of us, that will be to go to go and make disciples of all nations. 
But the call remains the same, no matter who you are, no matter where you are. It's based upon his authority. We were bought with a price. Our life is no longer our own. Therefore, we are to glorify Christ with our bodies. Whereas Paul says in Romans 14, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And though that is weighty, we do so gladly. We can do it gladly because we know that we are his. That he has done all that is necessary for us to be with him forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is able, able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think. We know what he's given us. And so in love, we long to live for his glory. Friends, Christ's glory is the fuel, it is the goal, and it is the confidence for our mission. The fuel It's what motivates us. It's what drives us into mission. We have seen his glory. We've experienced his surpassing love. And that's what propels us forward to share his worth, to share his glory, to share the inexhaustible treasure of Jesus Christ as Lord to others who have not heard it. His glory is what fuels us on this mission. But his glory is also the goal of this mission. The end result is that one day people from every tongue and every tribe and every people group from all over, from every point on the map, from every point in history will gather around his throne. And what will they be doing? They will be proclaiming the immeasurable worth of Christ for all eternity. That's the direction we're all headed. That's the goal of our mission. Because he alone is worthy of our worship. And because he is alone is worthy of our worship, that is why we are called to take the gospel to the 220 million or more Americans who are living and worshiping and loving and living for themselves. And we need to go and we need to tell them that they are not God, that this is not their world, that they need to turn and trust in the only one who is. This is why we are to take the gospel to the over 950 million Hindus in India who worship 330 million false gods because there is one true triune God and he alone is worthy of their worship. This is why we are to take the gospel to the 78 million Muslims in Iran who go on pilgrimages and give alms and pray five times of the day in this desperate hope that a distant holy God might consider them worthy enough to be forgiven because there is one true and living God who is holy, yes, but he has done all that is necessary for us to have forgiveness. We have hope, not of a distant God and being made right with him, but a near God who loves us and who lives in us, and they need to hear that. This is why we take the gospel to the 15 million Buddhists of Cambodia, because peace and tranquility don't come from worshiping ancestors or a dead fat man, but peace is given through the one Lord Jesus Christ who is himself our peace. The reason why we take the gospel to the 24 million atheists in North Korea is because there is a God. There is a God, and he sent his son to die even for their unbelief, and he alone is worthy of their worship and glory. Friends, the glory of Christ is the fuel and is the goal of our mission, but it is also the confidence of our mission. 
This statement allows us to go. I mean, who are we? Who are we to go to the five billion people in this world who do not worship Christ and say, listen, you are worshiping, you are living for, you are loving the wrong things. You're wrong. You need to turn and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. He is your only hope of life. He's your, the only way that you will avoid facing misery and anguish forever. I mean, who are we to say that? Who are we? It doesn't make any sense. Unless, unless it's true. Unless all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And if that's the case, if this is true, if what Jesus is telling us is right, then it's the only thing that makes any sense. He is the hope of life and salvation. He is the only hope for forgiveness and true and lasting change. He's the only hope of eternal reconciliation to God that we have all rejected. And we can have confidence, all the confidence in the world because Jesus Christ reigns over all and he will fulfill all of his purposes in his own perfect timing, in his own perfect ways. And he chooses to do that through us. Friends, the gospel will save. It will save. And so I can risk being beaten in the dirty streets of Asansol, West Bengal, because Jesus Christ is Lord. I can proclaim his glory with confidence to hundreds who have gathered all around in these streets who hate Jesus because Jesus is Lord over all. That he, I can tell them that he is the only hope of eternal life and the place in whom they must place their trust in his sacrifice and his resurrection and be restored and be given life and people will respond because the gospel will save. It's the only confidence that will lead us to risk our pride and our wealth and our position and our jobs and our comforts to proclaim the glory of Christ to our coworkers or to our neighbors or to our classmates. It is the only confidence that will lead us, uh, the glory of Christ motivating us, leading us to go out into closed countries where Christians are persecuted and killed because we can be sure that our labors are not in vain, that Jesus has guaranteed us that one day people from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every language, including that people group, will be there around the throne proclaiming his excellencies. That means that it will work. Maybe not like we want or like we expect, but it will work. The gospel will not fail. His mission will succeed. There is no darkness that is too dark for the light. It will penetrate. It will change. It will transform. And that is worthy of our lives. It's worthy of our lives. His mission will succeed. And so Christ's glory gives us confidence then to obey his commands, to go where he calls us to go in faithfulness and to leave the results to him because we know that he is able and we know that he will succeed. He has all authority and he will achieve all of his purposes and in and through and for us. So guys, this first statement means everything everything. If we don't get this first statement, we won't get any of the rest of it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so that's the reason for our mission, why we go. The glory of Christ, the Lord of the universe who saves. 
That is what compels, second, the mission to make disciples. The primary objective in the church's mission is to make disciples of all nations. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that the implication for the church in light of the authority of Christ is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The church's mission is not for us to gather once a week, sing songs in a comfortable air-conditioned building, offering convenient, easy faith, easy messages to build up and make us feel good about ourselves so that people can be baptized and attend our services. The mission of the church is not for us to develop Christian friendships or to create a Christian society. The mission of the church is not to try to be more moral or to do good deeds. It's not to build buildings filled with lots of entertaining, wholesome programs for the whole family. It's not even to motivate people to serve and give to the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Every disciple making disciples. Because we see that he's saying baptizing them, so we're starting the process of making disciples even before they're disciples. And it ends when they've reached maturity, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. They are followers of Christ. These are what disciples are. They're followers of Christ, but that's not in name only. You know, Matthew began his gospel with this call to discipleship. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So a disciple is a fisher of men. And now he ends his gospel with this call to discipleship again. And what does it look like? Making disciples of all nations. Fishers of men making disciples of all nations. This is what it means to be a disciple. To live for, to reflect, to follow, and to do what Christ does, which is make disciples who then turn and make disciples. This is our mission. This is our primary objective, to make disciples. And yet so many Christians make it about something else. We think the mission of the church is to gather together and sing songs. And as long as we feel really good and the songs really motivate us, you know, to have this, this levity, then we've done our jobs. Or that we just need to have programs and lots of classes to teach everybody of all ages. Or we, we need to focus on relationships. Or we need to focus on just gaining theological knowledge. But the goal is that all of that is meant to serve something greater, which is making disciples of all nations. You know, we do very Christian-y things. We surround ourselves with lots and lots of Christians who do very Christian-y things. We're very, very religious, but we are not productive. You know, there are many who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years who have never led someone to Christ, who've never taught another person how to pray or to read the Bible, who've never done anything to really help another to mature in faith or to come to faith in Christ. We've become spectators who leave the job of making disciples to the professionals. You know, I remember right after I got here, I was asked to go and preach in an on-mission celebration in central Illinois. And so 
for about a week or so, I went around from one church to another, basically preaching the same message, talking about how the gospel has the power to transform cultures. I was preaching from Acts 19. And in that passage, you see Paul is ministering, the gospel has been ministering in Ephesus for three years, and it is transforming the very economy of Ephesus. And it's such an issue that, that riots start to break out because he's affecting just the, that culture, that city, that, that economy. And I asked the question, why? Why do we not see that today? Why, why do we not see the gospel transforming culture in that way that we see there in that time? And of course, the, you know, one of the answers obviously is the Holy Spirit's work. But aside from that, the problems that we can look at that we need to deal with is the fact that one, we've taken on the idols of our culture. And two, we, we've lost belief that the gospel has the power to transform to that degree. And after preaching that in this small little town, Wise Town Baptist Church, Wise Town, Illinois, this tiny, tiny little church, this man, 74-year-old man comes up to me and he's weeping. He's 74 years old. He's been a follower of Christ since he was a boy. He's weeping because he's never led anyone to Christ. And he felt convicted as I was preaching that he's got this group of farmers that he gathers together with every week at McDonald's. And they talk about all sorts of things. He's, they're his dearest friends, but he's never, he's never shared the gospel with them. He doesn't even know that they know he's a Christian in any true sense. And he, he just wanted to know what he was to do. He was tears in his eyes, wanting to do this, but terrified. So I sat down with him for half an hour and we just talked, you know, and I, I, I talked to him about practical things like how to get a spiritual conversation started. I made sure that he remembered like just four words to help him to get the whole gospel in, God, man, Christ response. But you know, most of the time what I did with him is I just encouraged him and built him up in recognizing the glory of Christ, how the glory of Christ is the fuel, the goal, and the confidence for our mission. Unfortunately, his story is all too common in the American church. We've got this touchy-feely spectator mentality, you know, touchy-feely. You know, if I just feel led, you know, if the moment is right, the mood is right, there's some nice music playing in the background, and I just feel like it, and just all the doors kind of seem open, then I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll share my faith with someone else. Or we have this spectator mentality. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe if I just sit back at a nice, safe sort of, ambivalous distance and watch it enough times, maybe then at some point I'll be motivated to go and do it. But disciples of Christ share the gospel. They are fishers of men. They speak the gospel as they live according to the gospel in order to make disciples through the power of the gospel. Friends, we've been given the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. God's power living in us. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that part of the reason why we've been given the Spirit of God to live in us is so that we might be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is part of the reason why we've been given God's power, why we've been given God's Holy Spirit, is so that we might make disciples of all nations. Are we going to trust in that? This is why we're called to go. Go, therefore, make disciples. I have all authority. I've given you my power through the Holy Spirit. Go then, make disciples. And that word go is translated two ways. I think both are, not, are necessary, both are right. 
Okay, the first way to think about this is as you go. Okay, it's a participle, it says going. As you go, make disciples. And what that means is as you go through the course of your everyday life, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, take the advantage that the Lord has given you to make to, to find these opportunities that you've been given to make disciples, that God in his authority has designed your life. He, he has dictated where you live and where you work and where you play for the very reason that you might go in these providentially opportunities that he has given to make disciples. And so that no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, this call applies to you. No matter what your station is, no matter your age, no matter your stage in life, this applies to you. It's no accident. God has given you your job. God has given you your home. God has given you your interests, your talents, your community, your relationship, your city, your you name it, so that you might use them as opportunities to make his name known. And only you can do that. I don't work where you work. I don't live where you live. I don't know the same people that you know. So it's not my job. It's my job to equip you so that you might go and do that. So how are we doing? How are we making disciples in our workplace? How are we proclaiming Christ in our neighborhoods? How are we utilizing these social networks that the Lord has given us to reflect his glory, to speak of his glory to the nations? As you go in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are to make disciples. But second, this, verb, this, this participle going has imperatival force, right? It's saying we are to go. Not only as we go, but we are to go, okay? We are to go and make disciples of all nations. We can't make disciples of all nations if we are not willing to go. We can't just put out a sign in the front yard that says, attention all nations. If you are interested in becoming a disciple of Christ, please come and apply inside. Come and learn about what it means. No, the nations are not just going to come to you. We must take the gospel to them. We are to engage and to invest and to invite and to share our lives for the purpose of making disciples of all nations, whether that be here or whether that be abroad. We do it both daily through our everyday lives, but also as we go, as we look to go abroad. And this doesn't create a two-tiered Christianity. I want you to recognize that. So many times people think, oh, missionaries, church planters, those are like the green berets or the navy seals of Christians and everybody else just scum. That's not what it's saying. Saying, listen, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever the Lord is calling you to do, be open to that. Be, Be listening for where the Lord would direct you to go, but you make disciples where you are right here, right now. It levels the playing field. And here's the thing. Those who go, once they go, they're to stay. Did you get that right? Okay, we're to go and then we're to stay. We don't just go, 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 go. We stay, we invest, we build the church. And when Jesus says all nations here, he's not talking about geopolitical nations as we would define them. He's not speaking of the United States and the almost 200 different countries that we would find on a world map. He's talking about people groups here. If he was talking about 
geopolitical nations, that would be fantastic because that would mean our job is done. I think we've made it kind of into every country. Maybe we need to do that a little bit more in some countries that are closed off, but we're basically done. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's thinking in terms of tribes, cultures based around dialects. He's talking about people groups. And so what that means is when you, you can't think simply about India because there are 2,258 people groups in India. There are not 196 nations in the world. There are 11,248 people groups in the world, and we are to go and make disciples of them. And after 2,000 years of the church having received this call, of the church having gone out on mission to make disciples of all nations, there are still 6,546 people groups that are less than 2% Christian. There are 3,052 of them who, as we know it, are not being engaged with the gospel at all. 3,000 out of over 11,000 after 2,000 years. Why? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, right? Fear, apathy, ignorance of God's command, inability to go and to do that, but mostly... Mostly what it all boils down to is an unwillingness to go and to make disciples of all nations. That's really what it boils down to. Are we going to continue in these trends? Or will we obey Christ and his command for us to go and to make disciples? Each of us has a part to play in this, whether it be praying, giving, going. This commission was given to each and every one of us to make disciples of all nations. And here's the thing, guys. We have even less of an excuse, right? We live in Champaign-Urbana. Do you know that there's at least 24,000 internationals that live right here in our community? 24,000. According to U of I's statistics about their student population, there's 137 different geopolitical nations that are represented there. And that's not even counting the number of people groups that might come out of those 137 different nations. And so we, we don't have to go anywhere to make disciples of all nations. They live right next door to us. Their kids play in the same park that our kids play in. They ride on the same buses. They take all the same classes. They go to the same workplaces that we do. And we're to take the gospel to them to make disciples of all nations as we go right where they are. So our Lord Jesus Christ called us to take the gospel to them, to make disciples of them by his grace and by his power. So now you might be asking, well, what does that look like? What are the commitments for discipleship? Well, this text doesn't answer that exhaustively, but it gives us a really good handle. It goes on saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here we are given both the symbol of our profession of faith and the content of our discipleship. Now, I'm a Baptist. I got a rail for a minute. Excuse it. I love you guys. The outward symbol of our faith is baptism. Baptism is a public profession of our identification with Christ and our inclusion in his body. Those two go together. I don't know what you've been taught about baptism. I know that a lot of things go out there, but baptism is both our identification with Christ and our inclusion into his body. A lot of people, profess to be Christians, get that really, really confused. 
To be baptized is to say that I have come into a relationship with Jesus. This is not merely a ritual where one says, you know what, I kind of theoretically believe in these ideas about Jesus, but that no, I live for him. I believe that God has chosen to save me, that I know that Christ's sacrifice has been applied to me. I believe that I've received the Holy Spirit and I've now come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I know him, I love him, and I will spend my life seeking to know and love him more. And so in baptism, we profess our faith and our desire to live for him and we confess him as our Lord and we identify ourselves with his church. It is unheard of in the New Testament for someone to say that they are a follower of Christ and to not be baptized. It is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist, right? It is unheard of in the New Testament also for someone to say that they follow Christ and are baptized but not be a member of the church. Because who does the baptizing? The church. What are they baptized into? The church. And yet... Today, this happens frequently. And guys, I love you. you. I have to understand, I love you. I'm not judging you. I'm not, you know, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, but there are people in this room who profess to have faith in Christ who have not been baptized as Christ has commanded it. There are people in this room who profess to follow Christ and have been baptized, but they refuse to commit themselves to a local expression of his body. And I just have to say that both of those are living in willful disobedience to Christ's command, to his design, both for baptism and for the church. This is blatant sin against the Lord that you profess to love and follow. Those who are disciples of Christ, they long to turn away from their sin and to obey Christ. They want to do that, not perfectly, but willingly. They have a desire to follow him and to display that together in their lives. And if you are not willing to follow Christ in baptism or church membership, like you have this, like, I'm not going to do that, then you need to go back and carefully examine, are you truly willing to follow Christ? This is his idea. It's not mine. This is not the, we, we can't take a vote on this. This is not a matter of opinion. The Lord who reigns over heaven and earth is the one who declared this to be so, that this is the way that you follow me, part of the way that you follow me. And so you need to be asking yourself, am I truly a disciple of Christ? Because Christ even adds to that, right? He goes on in this verse. Not only do we make disciples of all nations by baptizing them into the name of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that happens to be in the context of the church, but we are called to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That means that we are to build them up, to edify them, to instruct them, to encourage them toward maturity in Christ. And that takes a church. That doesn't happen apart from the church. That happens in the church. Observe here doesn't mean that we just look at them, right? I just read. I can see the commands of, of Christ in there. I observed them. I'm going to move on. No, it means to obey them, to follow them, to heed them. We were meant to do them and to teach others to do the same. We observe by obeying all that Christ has taught. And that takes a church living together to do that. 
This doesn't happen in a classroom once a week or simply by hearing an occasional sermon. This requires that we know one another and are able to speak the truth in love to one another in the everyday rhythms of our lives together. This means that we are willing to humble ourselves and to receive admonishment and exhortation of others. It means that we pray together, that we study together, that we share and make disciples of all nations together throughout the course of our daily lives. Yes, we need sermons. Yes, we need classes. But we also need parents who are bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We need community groups sharing life together, seeking to apply God's words to every situation we find ourselves coming across and praying for one another and building one another up. We need life transformation groups that are holding each other to the word of God, taking us and pointing us to Christ and saying, this is how we are called to live. We need biblical counsel. We need older people discipling younger believers. We need all of that, right? All of that though takes the church. All of that is discipleship. All of that happens in the everyday life, not just on little slots in my calendar when my schedule doesn't fill it up with other things. And even for, for mature Christians, right? The way that we receive discipleship, this whole thing's rigged, right? Christ rigged this whole thing so that as you invest yourself in other people, you grow, right? That's your context for discipleship. You see, we were never meant to just sit there on our cans and receive 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 and receive. We meant to receive, to give, receive, to give. This is what it means to make disciples. All of that, every part of that, what happens on Sunday mornings and what happens on Thursday afternoons is all part of what it takes to make disciples. It's all discipleship. Every part of it. And that takes the church. It takes the church willing to be inconvenienced, willing to be sacrificed, willing to enter into the messiness of other people. It takes willingness to do hard things like church planting and church revitalization. It takes sharing the gospel with unbelievers because we saw that this whole discipleship thing starts before they're even believers and it continues until they reach maturity in Christ. It means that we invest ourselves and we seek to help each other to observe all that Christ has commanded. And friends, if we fail to do that, we will plateau. You can only grow so much in maturity in Christ by receiving. You were meant to give. You cannot reach maturity in Christ unless you are actively making disciples. This is why the church is as anemic as it is. We've bought into this idea that disciple making is for the pastors and not for the church. We've bought into the idea that it's just for a few to do that work, that I can't possibly be called to teach. Now, you might not be called to preach and teach in the way that I am, but you still have a responsibility to the body. It's not just for us to consume, it's for us to give. And when we do that, the church grows and is multiplied. Disciples are made. Friends, I want you to see the seriousness and the weightiness of this command. This is heavy. We should be feeling like a heaviness right now. Failure to disciple and to baptize and to teach the peoples of the world is failure of our own discipleship. Can we truly say that we're disciples of Christ if we're not making disciples in our homes and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our communities and among our family and friends or within the church or across the globe? I think if we were honest about that, we'd have to answer no. 
And so, yeah, it's heavy. Feel the weight of it. Christ, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, has given us this overwhelming responsibility to make disciples of all nations who then turn and make disciples. We are to be those who count and embrace the grave cost of discipleship and who commend it to others. We are those who are to go and to make disciples of all nations who plant churches throughout the world. I mean, think about the difficulty. Think about the demand. Think about the opposition that we will face if we live this out. Think of what we'll have to sacrifice in order to do this. Yes, it will be hard, but Christ meant for it to be hard because it leads us to the third point. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has given his church the primary objective of making disciples of all nations is the one who also gave us the most amazing promise. And it third is the assurance for the church's mission. You see, after declaring his authority over heaven and earth and then calling us to go and to make disciples of all nations, the second half of verse 20 says, and behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. He's saying, listen. Listen, as you go as ambassadors for my glory to make disciples of all nations, remember, remember that I am with you, that I'm always with you until the day when at last we see each other face to face. The success of the mission is not dependent upon your gifts and your abilities, but upon Christ's presence and Christ's power. We weren't first, I mean, weren't the first disciples evidence of that. I mean, think about these guys, right? Christ didn't just give a command to them and say, you know what? You go and you make disciples. I'm going to go up into heaven. I'm going to take a seat. Maybe I'll take a nap. You guys just let me know how things go. No, he says, my presence and my power are with you always. It is his mission, and he has given us all that we need to accomplish it. It's not that we take up his mission. Right? It's not that I left Louisville, Kentucky, and I came up here to plant this church, and I'm doing this thing, and, and then I'm asking Jesus to come behind me and bless it. Okay, Jesus, this is, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. This is my vision, my mission, my strategy. Uh, you want to come with me? You want to you bless what I'm doing here? That's not at all what happens. No, Jesus gives the command. Jesus gives the authority. Jesus gives the direction. And as Jesus goes, we go with him. In his presence and in his power. Another observation I just love about Matthew. Matthew begins his gospel in telling of Jesus' birth, and he says that Jesus is the Emmanuel, right? God with us. And how does he end here? Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, this is not his, our mission. This is Christ's mission. It is far, far bigger than any of us. And you know what? Here's the, here's the kicker, guys. We're the proof of that. We are the proof that this is far bigger than any disciple's mission. I mean, think about it. Jesus first spoke these words 2,000 years ago to a bunch of fishermen and assorted rejects on a mountain in the Middle East. And yet here we are. 
And when Jesus appeared to them, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, verse 16 tells us that even some of them doubted. And yet here we are. 2,000 years later in Urbana, Illinois, on the other side of the world, professing that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, receiving his word and being called out to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus took 12 idiots, gave them this authoritative claim, this call, this comfort, and now here we are 2,000 years later, other side of the world, same bunch of idiots called to do the same thing. How does that happen? I mean, those disciples are long, long, long dead. And here we are, called to take up their charge. I mean, how is it possible? Even, because even in fear and in trembling, even in their weakness and their foolishness and their sinfulness, even in spite of ridicule and hostility and persecution and death, Christ has kept his promise. He is with us. He was, is, and will always be with his church to the end of the age until his mission that he is fulfilling and calls all of his people throughout the world to participate in for very brief amounts of time until he has completed that mission. But through it all, as we take up our cross and we follow him as we go on his mission, he's always there. He's never leaving. He's never forsaking us, but he is comforting us and sustaining us and strengthening his church to walk in his command to make disciples of all nations. The success of this mission is not based upon who we are or what we can do, but upon who Christ is and what he is able to do both in and through our lives. And he's saying to each and every one of us, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Friends, are you going to trust him in that? You know, we don't need Christ's presence to live a quiet and comfortable life. Those who do not follow Christ prove that you can be successful in life apart from him. That you can have a nice job, you can do well, you can have a nice home, a nice family, nice fat bank account without him. We can even have a nice church building with entertaining programs for all ages and all of the creaturely comforts that money can afford. And we don't need Christ's presence for that. And ironically, neither will we experience his presence in that. But is that worth living for? Is that worth our souls and the souls of many others? Can anything that is perishable, no matter how good, compare to the eternal weight of glory that is Jesus Christ? But we do need Christ's presence and power to make disciples. We do. If you're, thinking, you're sitting here and you're just like, you know what, I haven't really experienced Christ's presence. I, I just don't even know whether he's with me. Well, maybe you need to take up this call and seek to depend upon him as you make disciples and, and experience his presence. Christ promises that we will when we obey this command. And so are you going to believe him? 
Are you going to believe him as you go and you take the gospel to your neighbor or to your coworker or to your classroom? Will you take, will you believe him and trust him as you go and take comfort in the fact that Christ is with you as you teach your children about his glory? Will you believe him and trust in him and depend upon him and find strength in him to go and do hard work like evangelism or church planting or revitalization? Will you cling to him as you obey this call to take the gospel? to the ends of the earth, to people who have never heard his name? Will you believe that he is able to strengthen you and to equip you to participate in this long and difficult and messy mission of making disciples of all nations who turn and make disciples of all nations? Friends, let us behold his glory. And in That confidence, let us take up this call to make disciples of all nations, trusting and taking comfort in his presence as we go. Our mission, the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. So friends, let's let's go. Let's go in his presence and in his authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I my prayer is that we would see in new and amazing ways the glory of Christ. That we would see his worth, that we would acknowledge his authority over every aspect of our lives, that we would take comfort in the fact that the Lord of all the universe has saved us, delivered us, and is always with us, strengthening and enabling us to do what he has called us to do. Lord, I don't want us to go through life living only for ourselves. I don't want us to, at the end of our lives, say, you know what, I've wasted it. Lord, I pray that we would see that Jesus is, is worthy of everything. And that we would be able to go in his strength. I pray that we would be open to, to responding in obedience to the ways that you have called us particularly to follow you. Whether that be through something as simple as baptism and church membership or whether that be heeding your call to go across the globe to invest our lives in the good of others. Lord, help us. We're not going to do this unless we see your glory. So Lord, help us to see your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.